there are a lot of assumptions that quote they need to be saved or fixed and what i know to be true is there's a quote that i love brilliance and talent are universally distributed opportunity is not you are listening to the real leaders podcast where leaders keep it real I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and joining us today is Erna Gras, the CEO of Asante Africa Foundation, who shares a unique perspective on prosperity. So in today's episode, Erna explains the misconceptions of Africa, how to sustain philanthropy, and why Africa is leapfrogging the tech world. So... Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Erna Gras. Enjoy. Let's get this show on the road. Here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Ears Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the CEO and co-founder of Asante Africa Foundation. It's Miss Erna Graz. Erna, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Very excited. Well, as you mentioned before the show, many guests tuning in. I think you said you had a guest from Uganda where Asante Found, uh, Africa Foundation is. Well, well also in uh, uh, Ta- Kenya, Tanzania. Tanzania. I've got Kenya. So how does one go from Nairobi, Kenya, uh, or from Silicon Valley to Nairobi, Kenya? What were you doing beforehand Uh, in Silicon Valley? Sure. Well, I have had the blessed fortune of being trained as an electrical engineer and a systems engineer. Um, I actually spent the first third of my career working at a Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a national laboratory where we do a lot of innovation, a lot of -of state-of-the-art science, a lot of making sure the States are well protected. And in my mid-career, I was had the good fortune of going to Silicon Valley. And um, I was vice president of research and development. I ran a couple of business units in different industries. Pretty, pretty life-changing, pretty awesome, and a great um, set of skill building. So that's a that's a austere career path for a little girl who didn't even know she would get the shot at going to university. So pretty cool. Well, let's talk about the little girl. Where'd you grow up? How, what got you into engineering in the first place? Um, well, engineering was just the good fortune of, of all of these people who care, needed to, who didn't need to care about me, but did. I, uh, I am a young I grew up as a young child with a mom who is a nurse and who was raised as an orphan. And my dad is a immigrant from East Germany. And um, neither of them had ever uh, finished university at the time. And as a little kid, it, w- it wasn't in the cards for me. And what changed is that as I grew up, I had people come into my life, Girl Scout leaders, making sure we were fed, school teachers who were checking on us to make sure that everything at home was okay, Um, high school teachers who sat at the 
kitchen table with me writing scholarship letters so that I would get a shot at university. And um, the funny story about engineering is that we were looking at ways that I could go to college and get a scholarship with my academic record. And um, one of my high school teachers said, well, you know, girls can get scholarships in engineering. And I'm like, wow, okay. I said, what do engineers do? He's like, well, I don't know, but you can get a good scholarship. (laughs) Exactly. So we chose electrical engineering and that helped define my path to the amazing career I've had. So it seems like you've had a lot of influences, mentors, leaders in your life that helped you get from point A to point B. You know, what does that do to someone growing up that, you know, maybe didn't have those opportunities or didn't see those opportunities clearly on the horizon and is now in a position, you know, like like where you are right now? Well, what Asante Africa started out as is heavily fueled by my own childhood. After my parents divorced, I saw what bad charity could look like. Mm. I, my mom was a nurse working double shifts. I clearly remember her dignity and her pride eroding because of bad charity. People dropping off food that we were either allergic to or didn't like, um, wearing clothes that didn't fit. And I think as a teenager, that sparked a frustration and an anger in me as a young person watching my mom's uh, hard efforts getting eroded. And so this organization, and I remember having a conversation with my mom early on about why don't people just ask us what we need Hmm. instead of assuming Mm. And that fuels what this organization is about. Um, we do not assume we, we, all the solutions are from the ground. All the approaches are led locally. And the two women that I co-founded this organization with are African and were equally as passionate about a big vision not being railroaded by outsiders. Mm. So it's, um, and I think the other thing that fueled what our organization is today is that growing up very poor, my mom indoctrinated in us that we were brilliant, we were smart, we had skills, and it's our responsibility to lift other people up coming along behind us And that that was irrelevant of how rich or poor you are. Mm. So the whole culture and mentality of paying it forward was infused in us from a very, very early age. And so that's a critical part of what our organization is today. All of our young people pay it forward. All of our teachers pay it forward. All of our staff pay it forward. Everyone has talents that can be shared. So that's a another guiding guiding principle of who we are. I love that, Erna. You know, from your experiences, you know, uh, putting the work, you know, doing yourself, believing yourself, and getting somewhere that you maybe not, maybe didn't think was possible to begin yeah. with. Now, you, you mentioned 
to your mother, you know, why don't people ask us what we want? Uh, they assumed we wanted this, these clothes, this type of boxed food. You know, what are some of the assumptions people have about East Africa? Oh, man, that's one of my most favorite topics. Mm. Um, I think that what I have personally learned through all of my partners, colleagues, staff, young people in Africa, there are a lot of assumptions that, quote, they need to be saved or fixed. And what I know to be true is there's a quote that I love. Brilliance and talent are universally distributed. Mm. Opportunity is not. Mm. And the brilliance, the creativity, the innovation, the entrepreneurship that exudes from pretty much everybody I know in East Africa, it, all, all that's needed are doors opened, opportunities created, dots connected. And um, I, I learned very frequently that the Western or the Northern mindset gets in the way of what real innovation can be in, in Africa. Um, one of my co-founders used to tell me frequently, Erna, you're thinking like an American that won't work here. So, and in many cases, innovation and techniques coming from East Africa is actually more clever, more creative, more innovative than what we might assume over here. Um, it's, there are so many assumptions. I think another assumption for East Africa is that there's not opportunity there. Um, one of the presidents of, of Rwanda, he says very frequently, we have the resources we need. They are just not equally distributed or available to everyone. Hmm. And so in a lot of cases, making that bridge between available resources, marrying it with the talent that's there. And in some cases, just guiding, guiding principles or asking the right questions will catapult a team or a person to what, what's next. So Aaron, before we go any further down about all the impact uh, Asante Africa is, is having in Eastern Africa in terms of increasing quality education, especially for females. I'd like to d dive into that a little bit later. Let's take our audience back a little bit about the inception point. W how did you go from Silicon Valley, you know, C-suite leader to Nairobi, Kenya? Yes. Well, there's a gentleman who is on this call named Chris Morris who helped us organize a dream bucket trip list uh, trip to climb Kilimanjaro for my husband and I. And while I, after we climbed Kilimanjaro, we did the whole safari thing. And Chris Morris actually connected me to the two co-founders that helped launch this organization. Uh, I met an amazing young Tanzanian woman named Emmy Moshi, and she was trying to start her safari business as an entrepreneur and when it was difficult for women to even own a vehicle. And she was needing to build a school in a community as a part of her give back. And then I was also introduced to a very powerful, passionate 
Maasai woman who was one of the first school principals. And Helen had this big vision of how little girls should not be married off at ages nine and 10, but they should be in school. And I got to know these two powerful women. I came back to Silicon Valley, sitting on the freeway, commuting an hour and a half each way. And because of the time zones, my five in the morning equated to their evening. So over a year, I just began to call Emmy and Helen and talk to them about their challenges and their dreams and their vision for their communities. And over over that year, I could begin to see that maybe there was a role an outsider could play in helping accelerate their vision. And it started out as all about just the opportunity of getting into a classroom and not having to live with a future that wasn't chosen. We wanted these little girls and little boys to have a choice about what their dream would be. And so three slightly crazy women set up this organization and without any awareness of what it could become. And it's, um, in, I would say naivety and um, lack of awareness of where the brick walls are probably helped us launch this. If I knew what I knew today, I'm not so sure I would do it again. <laughs> so help our audience out. Give us some context. How big is the foundation right now? Well, we've gone from three slightly crazy women to an organization that has about 45 staff and employees. They, uh, everyone in Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda are locals and they live in the communities where we work. And here in the U.S., we're very blessed and fortunate to have many, we have about 40 volunteers and we have about six part-time paid staff who help run the back office engine. And our, our organization today, we are driven by educating and empowering young people ages about fourth grade through high school about staying safe, knowing their health rights, um, having a social network to keep them safe and skill build to help them see their vision for their own futures and their families and develop the skills to either create jobs or take jobs. So, by the time they get out of high school, our goal is that they are self-sufficient and can can go chase that dream with the skills we've given them. I love it. Now, Erna, you mentioned there's people tuning in today from all around the world. You, you yourself had your own experience in Mount Kilimanjaro. Help our audience understand the circumstances for the individuals in East Africa. Sure. Many... Well, I will say that there's a difference whether we we were in off the paved road communities, very, very deep rural communities. Many of the children that we work with uh, still live day to day in a mud hut. Um, many of our children have never seen road pavement. They're, all their roads are dirt roads. And in many cases, the communities are either nomadic their, you know, livestock agriculture is their way of life. And it's a beautiful way of life. Um, 
in Africa where we work, it's really around bringing knowledge and, and awareness to these communities so that they can hold culture in one hand and knowledge in the other hand and just create choice for themselves and their families without outsiders judging and with and just be aware of what's possible. Erna, let's talk some numbers really quick. I think on your website, you said like 50, there's a 58% unemployment rate in a yeah. few of these countries and there's 61 million um, girls that don't have access to quality education. Uh, maybe dive into the specifics a little bit about why you think that is. Oh, goodness. Well, I would say that what's going on on the continent is that there's a youth bulge. 62% of the population on the Africa continent today is between 15 and 29. And no matter how fast the economy is growing, the youth population is coming of age faster than that growth. Mm. So there are sort of three dimensions of struggle in these different countries. One is absolutely poverty and surviving. If you don't have enough food for your family, the whole concept of buying a school uniform is out of reach. So rural poverty is one. Lack of awareness and knowledge is definitely another. If, if, you, if we don't know any different, it's really difficult to change mindsets. And then the third piece is, and the thing about awareness is it's about opportunities could be just outside of your sphere and you wouldn't be aware of it. So it's awareness and knowledge. Interesting. And then the third dimension are systems and structures um, without corruption, without um, with all the innovators going on on the continent of Africa in a lot of cases something as simple as registering your business without your idea getting stolen is really difficult. So the governments are working on systems and structures and we as nonprofits or social impact organizations can educate the communities and the youth who are the change makers of the future. They can be bringing new knowledge in and then we're building this divide of where are the jobs, where are the, the investment funds, and how do we help these young people secure those investment funds for their ideas? Africa has this explosion of economic opportunity. Mm. Businesses, they are more advanced than we are in many cases with mobile banking. So in a lot of cases, they're leapfrogging what we know here on the Northern Hemisphere. Yes. Yeah, go into that a little bit more. Like explain what the leapfrog is to our viewers uh, listening to this for the first time. And, and what are some of the opportunities uh, that, Africa, that are in Africa right now, such as you mentioned, mobile banking? Yeah. Well, so when I go to Africa, the young people are routinely teaching me about all the newest apps. Um, there, the apps are out in the ether and we either aren't aware of it or haven't needed those apps. 
So I'm always curious about the innovations. So for example, young people in Africa born today, they are being born digitally literate. They do not know a life without a mobile phone or a tablet or something that's digital, just like here. But the problem, the uniqueness to them is they've never been introduced to a laptop or a desktop. So they go from nothing to mobile device and their brain is not hindered by contained thinking about a desktop or a laptop. Hmm. So when they are designing apps and when they are designing code, right. they are not having to look back. Mobile banking. In the real communities, nobody trusts banks or banks are not even available. So now their phones, you can get loans on the phones. You can, you can save on your phone. You can, when I go to a grocery store in Nairobi or, or Uganda, no one uses currency anymore. They're, they are, at, you're at the grocery store and you're entering in their mobile code to transfer money. So the whole concept around Bitcoin, it will, it will scale and launch on the continent of Africa much faster than here. Things like that. Just amazing innovation. So why do you think that is though also? Because like I heard you know, cryptocurrency in Africa is also pertaining to the illegitimacy of like the, you know, current currency in the nation, whether it's corruption in the nation, whether it's inflation, uh, avoiding taxes, you know, some of the things that are benefits of a decentralized platform. Uh, why do you think that the you know younger generation is adopting this technology so quickly? And then, and then like, you know, what are the other benefits of using a decentralized um, app that uses, you know, let's say just, you know, I don't know, fake money or cryptocurrency or mobile exchanges? Well, I don't know if it's fake currency, but I think the whole concept of not having to have tangible paper Mm. is becoming more of a norm there than, than in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay. I think in many cases, I'll give you another great example of some of our rural youth. So in many of the communities where we live and work, girls for religious purposes or cultural purposes can't necessarily work alongside boys, especially if they're single. And the ability to help young girls be able to work behind a keyboard it's agnostic to who is actually the, the work being provided by. So a group of our young women decided to start their own software support organization. And they literally sit in a mud hut with a hotspot, scanning documents, uploading and making money. And it's five young ladies sitting in a mud hut of Muslim origin, and now they are becoming quite the heroes because they can put food on the table for their families. So that level of while scanning, while the innovation isn't in the job itself, 
the approach of offering a service hmm. is extremely clever and innovative. Yeah, and my my bad. I didn't mean to say uh, fake money. It, it, it's just you know what is currency? Yeah. It's a means of exchange. You know, it, it's whatever exactly. you'll I'll take for what you want to give me. Um, and it, it throughout the history of time maybe has changed. Uh, it, so what can we learn from uh, East Africa in this sense, in this leapfrog approach where they're coming out uh, with these mobile devices? They're in these mud huts making money through their uh, entrepreneurial business. Like, what can we take away? from what's going on in East Africa? You know, thank you for asking that question. Um, One of the things that I am frequently educating those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere is that there is a great deal of cross-cultural learning and just simple things around innovation for sure. But I've also asked myself a similar question of why are we as Northerners so enamored with the continent of Africa? Why are we all going there on safaris? What is it that's pulling us? And what is it that pulls us back? And I think I've spent a decade sort of analyzing this. And in many, many cases, what what is evident to me is that the African community is still living true to many of their value systems. The essence of what community is, is still in their genetics, in their DNA, what a neighborhood is, what a village is being there for each other during hardships. Um, You may not have, meals. So I'll give you an example of that during COVID. We, we were delivering food to our children and their families, a family, we provided enough food for a family of five. And one of the mothers said to us, she said, I am one, I am a co-wife to a man and there are five families, five wives. She said, your food that you're providing us is not feeding five. You're feeding about 30 because we are sharing this food with our co-wives and their families. So something as simple as community in our individualistic world, we, we have lost some of that. Um, that's one. Another one is to listen to each other. Africa is a very relationship-oriented continent, and the concept of trust and building trust before you do business is a very real factor, Um, as well as just the, the joy, the spirituality and the joy on the continent. When when you have to create your own fun, when you have to create your own toys, when you have to create your own entertainment, it usually translates to music, dance, um, skits, comedy. And there's such a innate talent that I think we are beginning to lose. We have to really work at keeping that here seems like you have a good pulse on the culture, obviously, and it's really good to, to understand this. 
Now, what to you makes a good ecosystem? I know you, you all have a unique approach and a unique model for how you want to scale and how you want to you know, use these different resources to improve the quality of education as a whole, because we know all of these things are so interconnected. So to you, Erna, what is a, what makes up a good ecosystem? Yeah. You know, we've had over our last decade of, as an organization, we've had so many conversations around, why don't you just build school desks? Why don't you just give scholarships? And when we think about what a child needs to flourish and believe in themselves and build academic learning, it's so much more than a desk or a pencil. In some cases, it's needing to know that an adult cares. In some cases, it's making sure that you don't get jumped on the way home from school by some boy in the village. It's in some cases, it's food. Many of the reasons young children go to school is so they can get a a meal. So it's this ecosystem with the child at the center of how do we empower that child to believe they are, you are worthy. I, I view a huge part of my job is holding up this mirror so that my staff, the young people, begin to see themselves in that mirror as brilliant, worthy, talented, worthy of having a dream. And then we are there as mentors and guides on that journey with them doing the hard work. I think the critical thing about our ecosystem is nothing's for free. Everyone has to be a part of the approach and the solution. The children have to put in the hard work of learning. Our programs are probational. If you're not carrying your weight, you don't get to keep the scholarship. Mm. Um, We support the parents. The parents have to be a part of making sure they're visiting the children And I had one parent say, I can't read. How do I help my teenager who's now smarter than me? And one of the other parents said, look for the red X's and the green check marks. Ask them questions. Make sure that they have light before the candles burn out to study. So having this ecosystem of the parents, Asante Africa, the educators, the community leaders advocating for children having a right to education. This ecosystem supporting this child is paramount with everybody doing their part. And one of the indicators of whether we know this ecosystem is working is that if we are, if our staff is in a conversation and they are talking about the Asante Africa program, we know our model's not working. If it's working, they refer to the program as our program, our scholarship program, our girls adolescence program, our entrepreneurship program. And so we hear the language of their ownership. We know that as we back up, they are owning the whole program. So this 
decentralized approach of leadership, taking ownership for your own education is something that we've spoken about in terms of sustainability. It's, it's a scalable model. It's something that, you know, maybe some charities could learn from uh, and adopt this, you know, more of this take ownership model versus I'm going to give you, um, you know, a desk mm-hmm. model um, <laughs> in layman's terms. So, Erna, uh, maybe explain to our audience, you know, your uh, philosophy on sustainable, you know, philanthropy and why you chose to structure this business as a nonprofit versus a for-profit. The first one is all about programmatic sustainability. Can the program survive beyond our introduction or support? The second one is financial sustainability. Can these young people sustain their ideas and innovation? Can the organization sustain itself with funding in coming from inside the countries? And then the third is the governance sustainability. Can we do we have strong enough systems and structures in place to support um, managing against corruption? Um, strong enough leadership at our board level for oversight and internal controls. So those are sort of how we measure long-term thriving sustainability is the phrase everyone's using. You know, I think that's one of the biggest traits of leadership, you know, leaving things better than you found them. When you leave the organization, is it able to survive? I think that's the one thing a lot of entrepreneurs miss when they're designing Mm. their companies because usually it's it could be an ego thing it could be a you know profit driven venture that they start and they're not thinking about how do i sustain the company so that when i leave it it will be better and i think that comes down to leadership so maybe some advice now i heard this is a leadership podcast maybe we should talk about it what builds trust in an organization and how how do you know Erna, when you leave this organization, it's going to be able uh, to not skip a beat. I think, man, so what's fascinating about this year is we are all learning about ourselves as leaders in the moment of crisis. I, what I see, I have always been a very, very firm believer that it does, leadership isn't about getting it right. Leadership is about setting a path and guiding the team on that path and being humble enough that maybe I don't have all the answers. And in many cases within our organization, it's very rare that I have the answers. The answers are typically coming from inside the countries. What I try to do and what I encourage everyone to do is to speak truth, speak ground truth, do not necessarily give the boss what you think they want to hear, but give them what they need to hear. And um, I think a huge part of is staying humble. You know, I have made so many mistakes along the way. And the moment that I am alerted, that Erna, you're wrong, or that won't work, or you screwed up, 
is I had, I've always been trained when you know you've made a mistake, bow and bow low. And regardless of, of, and acknowledging it openly and humbly that I ain't all that some days. Um, so that's probably another one. And I think the other element that we all strive for in our organization, every one of us is a leader. Every one of us has the worthiness of sitting at the table of decisions. We each have a different role to play, but we are all successful contributors to the bigger solution. Um, I once was told a phrase that I hold very dear. If we are fixing, we are working from a place of brokenness. If we are, if we are helping, we are inferring hopelessness. But if we are serving, we are working from a place of we can all come together and create a better solution collaboratively than what any of us could do on our own. Mm. So there's a phrase within Swahili that we use a lot, tukopamoja, we are together. Mm. And that phrase is a huge part of guiding us. Um, I think one of the most humorous things that I was told by my Uganda country manager last week, I went and did some photography and one recently, and one of the pictures of me was me in a tree and the Uganda country manager. He said, Erna, you might be the only CEO that I know that climbs trees. <laughs> and for me, that was a very powerful message that he gave me that I am, I, we don't want this hierarchy. We don't want titles. We want everyone's comparable contribution. And that is probably an attribute that we are building into this organization that is quite different from Africa organizations. They are um, many, many African organizations are still working from a very hierarchical footprint. And we are trying to create more of the round table footprint. Now, Erna, so that, yeah, go, I was going to yeah. say, now, if you were to go to back to Silicon Valley, how, how would you lead differently? You know, um, personally, I think Africa was brought into my life because when I worked in Silicon Valley, I was coming from a much more um, driving my destiny framework. I, I was probably a much harsher personality. I was... As a, as a woman executive, as a woman engineer, I spent much of my career trying to fit and wear the uniform of all my colleagues. And in many cases, 
I think I lost myself along that way. And so I think what, how I would lead differently now is there is no work-life balance. It's all an integrated lifestyle. Mm. If you're going through a divorce at home, the probability of be high, high performing at work is pretty low. And just acknowledging that we need to give each other some space to just be human, I think is another collateral benefit that's coming out of COVID. Hmm. I, I think just all of us recognizing that we all wear different uniforms at different times of the day. And right now we're all seeing each other's backgrounds and struggles wearing those different uniforms. So that would be different for me now. Interesting. So interesting. Now, when you say like integrating, you know, the work and life together, you know, a lot of people say, well, you need balance, you know, you need time off. But I think what you're saying is, you know, this needs to be integrated, needs to be together, needs to be a part of, you know, your daily life. How do you see your work in your, you know, uh, life right now, your lifestyle right now. And how do you kind of harmonize those two? Not well. <laughs> but you said you like it. Though. You said that you, this is, this is kind of why you like it now. Okay. Well, I, so I have been a researcher and studier of leadership my whole life. And I think, Now, what I am looking for is the universal truths. Mm -hmm. What are the universal truths that are regardless of context? And I think COVID is the, the pandemic has surfaced many of these universal truths more to the surface and you know, each of us, no one is perfect. We all fall. We all make mistakes. We, I've often been told getting from Erna, watching you go from point A to point B is actually pretty messy. And I actually have paused and thought about that, that maybe messy is okay if I'm at least moving in the direction of true north, maybe these curves and detours will bring out some learning that I need. Mm. And just being, you know, Africa has brought to light that nothing goes according to plan. Right. And in many cases, when we try to force it, like I used to do goal setting Erna here by this date, this much money by this date. When, when I was driving my destiny, I didn't have time to smell the roses. I didn't have time to look for additional learning. And so as a leader, it's prioritizing. Mm. It's, allowing the laughter of the neighborhood kids to pull me out of my office to go out into the street and play with the kids. It's, it's the joy of being in nature. Mm. Some of those things 
the African context hasn't yet lost, that we are trying to refine. Um, so yeah, I think some of the universal truths for me, and these are generalizations, but I, tr I believe them to be true, is that every mama in this world has a heart and a love for their child regardless of where your that child is born every father wants their family to be safe and secure and every man wants to be recognized and respected and appreciated for what he brings and every child has big, would like to have big dreams and inherently trusts adults. And we want that for them, right? We want their innocence to be supported. And I think another universal truth is we can all have a role to play. It might not be the implementer. It might be our role to play is dot connecting, funding, um, opening doors. And we all have a role to play. We just need to rethink from where we come from what that role is globally. And I think another universal truth is each of us needs our spirituality, our values to guide us, our whether that's culture, whether that's religion, whether that's connected to the earth, whether that's whatever we define that to be, we need that in, to have a more fulfilled life. So those are a few universal truths. It, it's so, I think what you said is just so powerful. Uh, you, you know, you're embracing this uncertainty now. You have, you have come to East Africa uh, and it has changed you as a person uh, and how you perceive the world and how you're still searching for these answers. It's, it's just powerful stuff, uh, you know. And, and so I, I, here's a question I just wanted to ask. You know, I've never been or I've never been to Tanzania. Want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Let's make it happen. Uh, haven't been to Uganda. Certainly want to visit Kenya. What do you love so much about the people there? their joyful nature, their, willing, their willingness to include you in their world with, with excitement, their, their pride of culture, and their desire to not lose their heritage and culture. That's very powerful. Um, I'll give you I'll give you a great example of just my one of my last trips. I was in a vehicle with my staff going down this dirt road in northern Kenya. And I remember saying to my staff, can we stop the car? I just want to take a picture. And they're all like looking around like. What are you going to take a picture of? And I said, we don't have hundreds of camels in my, our backyards. 
we don't have camels at all in our backyards. And they were like, you don't have camels? <laughs> and so there was literally about a hundred camels walking by Wow! that they thought it's just ordinary life. Right. And it's so cool to be in this world that's so authentic and it just helps us see the goodness and the beauty of what every country, what every community brings. So it's, you have to go. It's the joyful nature of the people will bring you back year after year. No question. Oh, no, and I, we, I, I want to go. Definitely. <laughs> I definitely want to go. We had this conversation like a couple of weeks ago uh, because uh, you were, you were like, Oh, you know, I actually do really respect Akon's work, you know, in Senegal, there's another country I want to go with. I want to hear your take on this because Akon, he's building this, this, um, you know, futuristic city is going to be sustainably sourced food, you know, uh, sus- uh, powered by uh, alternative energy. Uh, it's going to be using uh, their Acoin cryptocurrency as the main means of exchange for entrepreneurs, business entrepreneurs, any tech entrepreneurs, like you mentioned, the dApps, uh, decentralized apps. Uh, so how do you see this actually changing? I've heard kind of uh, both sides of the coin. How do you see this uh, installment in Senegal going? I have tremendous respect for what Akon is trying to achieve. And it may not be perfect. And what he is doing on the continent, he is showing that the brilliance and talent is in-house. He is showing that collectively as an African continent, we can look at we can look after our own people, that we have the resources and the talent and the skill to do it. He is going to show the outside world that when you eliminate corruption and the external law, uh, the external influences, he's going to show that it can work. And he is a brilliant role model to young people coming up behind him. Um, I have a lot of respect for what he's trying to do with um, just sharing his story and speaking truth to the younger generation of you don't have to go abroad. You can you can thrive and be wealthy and successful here without looking to the outside world. Now, that doesn't mean the outside world doesn't have a role to play, but they can be the architect of their own futures. They can be the architect of their own destinies, and they can engage us as partners without feeling less than. That's wicked powerful. And the fact that he's this phenomenal artist at the same time gives him additional street cred. So he's, I, I solely support him and I heavily suspect that as he shows the validity of his model, there's going to be a lot of other organizations trying to do what he's doing. Yeah, I think just a visionary uh, as a whole, uh, you know, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, he's going to run into some challenges, but those are good. 
you know, we're going to learn a lot from kind of his progress, what what they are doing. It's not just him. It's many, many people, many investors into this as well. Uh, okay. Or I just wanted that last question. I know that's just an interesting topic for me. I, I want to hear from you, someone who's on the ground. Uh, many examples of leaders today, many examples of leadership. I mean, you started, uh, you know, maybe not having as many opportunities as other people, uh, having some female role models in your life to say, hey, you know, take this scholarship with the the engineers. Uh, it's 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 a great opportunity for you to then uh, being a gold driven Erna uh, in Silicon Valley to having this overwhelming experience uh, in Mount Kilimanjaro, making a transition, founding Asante Africa. So all of these experiences together, let's bring this home, Erna. What is your definition of a real leader? So I have two awesome mentors who. Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner, they have developed a series called um, um, Exemplary Leadership and the Leadership Challenge. And the definition that speaks to me is leadership is the art of mobilizing others to want to struggle for shared aspirations. And the reason that is so powerful for me is when I think about the word art, it's each person can paint their own canvas of what leadership looks like in their world. And a good leader, I, we and we're a great example. We know what we do is hard. If it were easy, everyone could have done it before us. But we are choosing to struggle together toward our true north and shared aspirations of what a brilliant continent is going to look like. Powerful. Ernest, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I hope you hang around for a few questions after the show. Uh, but for, for Negras, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, mobilize others, help them paint their own canvas, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Erna. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Erna Gross. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet left a review, please scroll all the way down to the bottom on Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show to let others know what to expect when they come to this channel. Also, folks, if you didn't know, All of these episodes are streamed live on our new Crowdcast channel, as well as on LinkedIn. So if you want to attend a live interview, go to real-lawyers.com, podcast live events, and see who's coming up next. Or you can just like our LinkedIn channel, just at Real Leaders, and never miss a live episode where you can ask your own questions. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader. And always, folks, keep it real.